The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. A reading from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, verses 13 through 16. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me, do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Christian. All right, Um, Mark chapter 10, we're in a sermon series called Encounters with Christ, where each week we're looking at a different... Uh, encounter that Jesus had with people. One of the things I love about a sermon series like this is that we live in a time where a lot of people have ideas about who Jesus is. We think we know who Jesus is, uh, and I think a lot of times we base those ideas of who Jesus is on uh, maybe who we hear people saying he is or ideas we think Jesus would be into, um, and so we just sort of create this personality of Jesus according to what we think he should be like or what we think he is like, um, and I don't know that there's a, a, a worse insult to give a person than to just assume that they're whatever it is you want them to be, uh, and so I love a series like this because we go to the source, we go to the Gospels, and we look and we see, okay, what was Jesus like? Specifically, what was he like as he interacted with people? Uh, because that's where you see the character of Jesus coming through in practical ways. The passage we read this morning, he's encountering a few different people. Uh, He has just finished having a conversation with some Pharisees about parsing the law. Uh, He has his disciples he interacts with. There are parents. Uh, And then there there are children. Uh, And... This is one of those passages that you might look at it on the surface and say, okay, I got it. I already know what you're going to say. Jesus likes kids. Um, And yes, he does, but there's more to it than that. And so we're going to jump into this passage because what he's saying here is really instructive uh, for adults. And so we're going to look at this. Um, A few years ago, I went through a pretty major medical crisis where uh, I was healthy and fine, and then I got what I thought was a virus because I had a coworker who had a virus, and I thought he had what he had, and it was one of those fevers, and but it just wouldn't go away. Uh, And and after antibiotics and waiting out a virus and all that stuff, after about three weeks of having a fever, I had to have some blood work done to figure out what in the world was wrong with me. It led to, um, the day after that blood work was done, I was admitted into the emergency room at Vanderbilt um, where I was aggressively treated for a blood-borne bacterial infection which had destroyed my mitral valve and I had to have open-heart surgery. And so in, in a very short window of time, I went from being healthy to being uh, stopped dead in my tracks because of this, this health crisis, and then my life changing uh, in a whole lot of ways. And I'm sure that over the, over the years, over the months, I'm going to tell you a lot more about that story and, and a lot that went into that. But what I want to tell you about today is that during that long recovery process, one of the ways I 
used that time, and in fact, I would say this was part of my recovery, was I read a lot of books about survival. I read a lot of survival stories. I'm drawn to survival stories anyway, but I found myself in a situation where I was living one. Um, and so I just would devour these stories of people whose expeditions went wrong on Mount Everest or were adrift at sea or were, you know, got off a trail in the woods and got lost and lived to tell about it. And I just I read a lot of these. And a friend of mine recommended a book by a guy named Lawrence Gonzalez, which I highly recommend, called Deep Survival. Deep Survival, subtitle, Who Lives, Who Dies, and Why. And it's a fascinating read about people in survival situations and what determines the outcome of that survival situation. And what he found, which would make so much sense, is he found that, that um, the decisions the person in the, in the survival situation makes have a lot to do with whether they live or die. Um, Do any of you feel like you're in a like you're just surviving in life in general? Like life is just kind of coming at you, it's happening to you, and you're reacting, and you're trying to keep your head above water, and you may not be lost in the woods or adrift on the ocean, but you feel like every day is just an exercise and trying to keep things together, trying to hold things together. Because if you are, um, which I think is a lot of us, I think that's our culture, you'd be amazed at how much that factors into every facet of life. If, if you're just kind of trying to dodge everything that's coming at you in life, that's going to shape the way that you have relationships with your family. It's going to change the way that you approach your work. It's going to change the way you think about God. It's going to affect all of that. And what Gonzalez saw was that in survival situations, the majority of people just don't know what to do. And so they freeze or they panic, right? They freeze or they panic. And when they do that usually the result is not good. But there's this small percentage of people who don't. They don't freeze, and they don't panic, and they stay cool, and they stay calm, and those are the ones who live. Why? Why do the people who stay calm tend to live? The answer has everything to do with our passage. It's because they're able to assess correctly the situation they're in and adjust to it rather than trying to make the situation that they're in adjust to what they think it should be. And spiritually, we do this. We think the world should adjust to all the effort we're putting in to being decent people, to being uh, thorough, to being excellent in our work. And if life does we, we just get, we can get so lost and so confused if the world doesn't adjust and adapt to that. Gonzalez makes this observation that is fascinating, and what he does is he finds that, well, you know who has one of the highest survival rates of any demographic of people? Children under the age of six. Children under the age of six is a demographic that has the highest survival rate in a survival situation of anybody. Now you're curious, right? You want how, how can that be? It actually makes a lot of sense. Children under the age of six adapt to whatever situation they're in. They don't have a preconceived idea of how things are supposed to go. 
And so they're just in a situation, and they just kind of roll with it. He writes this. He writes, small children don't understand traveling to a particular place, and so they don't run to get to somewhere beyond their field of vision. They also follow their instincts. If it gets cold, they'll crawl into the hollow of a tree to get warm. If they're tired, they'll rest. If they're thirsty, they'll drink. They try to make themselves comfortable. And staying comfortable help keep, helps keep them alive. Kids under the age of six just kind of take things as they are, not as they should be. And today's text is about people who think they already know what a situation calls for. And as a result, they cannot see or understand what is happening right in front of them. So Jesus has just finished talking to some Pharisees about divorce law. And they've wanted to parse this with him. And they wanted to dissect to know where the line was, to know what was called for and what was not allowed. And that's something that we do when we want to feel assured, when we want to avoid guilt, right? We want to know where the line is. I'll stay inside the line if you'll just tell me where the line is. And so it was serious business they were having a conversation about. It was grown-up talk. And then all of a sudden, parents start bringing children to Jesus. And the heady, serious vibe of the important discourse is now suddenly shot through with the sounds of little ones who lack the self-awareness and could not care less about parsing the law. They just don't, they don't care. Do you remember a couple of years ago there was a, video that kind of went viral of a, of a guy who was kind of specialized in um, South Korean politics, and he was giving this interview with the BBC in his bedroom office. Some of you remember this. It's worth looking up. He's giving this very serious kind of hot take on politics, and, and all of a sudden, the door behind him bursts open, and it's these two little kids and they're his kids, and they just come bouncing into the room, and they're kind of dancing, and he's giving this talk, and they're just behind him doing this whole thing going on, and he, and he realizes it, and you can see in that moment, if you watch his face, you can see in that moment that this is a man who is torn because he really wants to be daddy right now, but he has to be political correspondent, and his kids are coming, and they're kind of getting in his face, and he's kind of, he's kind of pushing them away, but in, a, in like a, uh, I don't, really, really want to do that. And the beauty of that is, is it went viral and everybody thought it was hilarious, but the kids had no idea. They, had no, they still don't have any idea that we thought that was awesome because they were just kids being kids, right? The disciples, are, they try to salvage a moment because these kids burst in and they're doing what kids do, you know? They're, they're kind of half paying attention, half not paying attention, and they're distracted and they're making noise and they're asking questions, and, and, and the disciples are trying to salvage the moment, and, and they're doing it by what? By rebuking who? Not the kids. They rebuke the parents. The passage says people were bringing children, and he rebuked them. Not the kids. The ones who were bringing. Who brings children places? Not random people, right? Parents, caretakers, guardians. So you have parents bringing children to Jesus because they want him to bless them. And the disciples are like, not now. Get them away. This is serious. You're ruining the moment. Your kids are messing this up. And their reaction, the disciples' reaction, was both cultural and situational. It was cultural because in Jesus' day, 
children were seen as distractions. Uh, they had no standing in the community. Their job, a child's job, was to become a person of standing. But as children, they had none. So culturally, a person of no standing is interrupting a moment between people of great standing. And it's also situational because the disciples' job with a rabbi is crowd control. That's part of their job is to make sure that they're, they're handling the moment. They're managing the crowd. And so they're stepping in thinking they're doing the right thing because culturally and situationally it's what's called for. And Jesus rebukes them. Why does he rebuke his own disciples? Is it because he just likes children? Of course he likes children. He clearly likes children. But there's something deeper at stake here. And that's where we're going to go into this. Because the disciples, what they're doing when they start shooing the parents away and rebuking them and kind of giving them the, who do you think you are? What Jesus does is he interjects because the disciples are interpreting Jesus in that moment. They're interpreting Jesus' values. They're acting on his behalf. And by their actions, they're telling these parents and the children what sort of a person Jesus is. But they're misrepresenting Jesus. And in the process, they're misrepresenting God. They're presenting Jesus as somebody who is irritable, as somebody who is impatient, as somebody who is only interested in being in the company of the spiritually and the socially elite. That's how they're presenting Jesus to these parents and to these kids. Sinclair Ferguson untangles this a little bit further. He says this. He says, Jesus, quote, Disciples were doing the very thing for which he so consistently opposed the Pharisees. They misrepresented the character of God. The disciples were now doing the same in connection with Jesus. By their actions, they were saying, this is what Jesus is like. He has no time for your children. No wonder their master was so deeply moved. What to the disciples was an exercise in their authority was to Jesus a complete distortion of the kingdom of God. End quote. We see conflict through very truncated lenses, don't we? Because it would be so simple to interpret this passage as being about whether or not Jesus wants kids around. Okay, he wants kids around. We're done, right? It's as though this text is just in the, past, in the pages of Scripture for us to see, oh, Jesus is sweet. He's sweethearted. He, he likes kids. Isn't that neat? But this text is about that all-important question that Jesus would put to his original disciples and then he would put to everybody everywhere. And that question is this, who do you say Jesus is? Because his disciples, in the act of turning these kids away and the parents away, are saying something about who Jesus is. And Jesus is indignant with his disciples, not only because of how they're handling the parents and the kids... But he's indignant because of how they're handling him. Why is this passage so important in Scripture? It's because in a very real way, and I don't think this is hyperbole to say this, in a very real way, the entire gospel stands or falls based on the question that Jesus is pushing to the forefront here. And the question is this, who is worthy to receive Jesus' blessing? 
Who is worthy to receive Jesus' blessing? What qualifies a person to be eligible for grace? What qualifies a person to be eligible for grace? I want to ask you to wrestle with these questions with regard to this text because we all have working understandings of what we think makes a person worthy of God's love, of what we think makes us worthy of God's love. And if we're honest, a lot of us would kind of wrestle that down to performance, to, to some measure of lovability that we've defined for ourselves. And Jesus responds here to all this, and he says, No, to such as these belong the kingdom of God. What does Jesus, what does Jesus mean here, to such as these? Does he just mean children? Is Jesus just making a statement about the innocence of children? If you're a parent, you know kids are not innocent, right? They have a sin nature. Jesus is not making a statement about undefiled character. Because you can't find in Scripture anywhere that would say Jesus welcomes children or God receives children on the basis of their righteousness. Because, <laughs> because kids are not righteous, right? They, they may be a little less sophisticated in the art of sinning uh, than, than we become later when we're grown up. But Jesus says, to such belongs the kingdom of God. And on the surface, one of the beautiful things that we see here is Jesus is saying, kids are a part of everything I'm doing. In other words, they're not just junior firefighters with little red plastic helmets and paper badges pretending to be real firefighters. They really are in the mix with Jesus. The kingdom of God belongs to children such as these. Children should not be held back from Jesus because Jesus will not be held back from them. Beautiful. Isn't that beautiful? But then we have to ask the question, and we have to ask it in order to understand what's happening here. On what basis comes this welcome? On what basis comes the welcome of Jesus? To children or to anybody? Because Jesus isn't talking about mere innocence here. And so, let's get theological for a minute. Specifically, who are the children Jesus is welcoming in this passage? To such. Who are these such? These are kids who have parents who have faith. Okay? These kids are being brought, the such in this case, are kids whose parents' faith and hope compel them to bring their children to Jesus for his blessing and for his care. These parents want Jesus' blessing. And there are two points here that I want to unpack briefly about this. These children are children who are brought, and they are children who are dependent. So that's what we're seeing in this context. These are children who are brought. Let's unpack that first. Follow me on this, because as a parent, I kind of had my mind blown this week as I was reading this passage. Uh, it, was, it was a beautiful thing that I saw in this text, and, and I hope you'll see it too, is these children have caretakers, 
who have an existing faith. We don't know exactly what the faith is. It's all kind of being developed because the cross hasn't happened yet. But, they, but they're, they're looking to Jesus and they're seeing something in him and they want their kids to be blessed by him. And so they have this existing faith that they're seeking to pass on to their children. They want their children in the path of that blessing. And what's interesting about this is this is one of the primary methods of evangelism that you see in the Bible, is faith being passed down from one parent to a child, from parent to child, from generation to generation. You see this in Scripture everywhere. In fact, it's the main way evangelism happens is through descendancy. Why does it work? Is this just a matter of expediency? It's just convenient? Well, let's step back a little bit and understand that a family is not an accident. It's a design. A family is a design that God put together, right? God said it's going to be this way. I'm going to make people in my image, and I'm going to wire them to relate to each other in particular ways, and in that relating, families are going to exist. And these families are ideal situations for passing down faith because a family is designed to be built upon unconditional love. I know not every family functions that way, but they're intended to, right? Even bringing children into the world is rooted in an act of intimate love. Love is a foundational thing for families. We right now live in a very individualistic culture, very individualistic culture. We prize our personal freedoms and our choices over almost everything else. In fact, we speak of our autonomy as virtuous. My, auto my autonomy is a virtue, as though, you know, it's, it's what you're telling somebody when you say, listen, Nobody can tell you what you can do. Nobody can tell you what you can be. You can be anything you want. You can do anything you want. That is such a new, new, pretty radical concept for human beings. Most societies do not and have not historically lived that way, but we do right now. That's, that's the time that we're in. And, and, and when, when we do that and we say nobody can tell you what you can do or what you're going to be or who you are, what's the value behind that thinking? What's the core value behind that thinking? It's individualism. Right? We're valuing, you be an individual. And so, even when it comes to matters of faith, we prize individualism. We, we prize conversion stories of a person coming to faith and t telling the story of how that happened. And we prize that over the seemingly more boring story that says, I don't know. I was just kind of raised in the church and just don't remember a day when I didn't believe. That's kind of my story. And we say it as though nothing happened. A miracle happened. A miracle happened. That you're living a life where you don't know a time when you didn't believe in Christ. All that had to come together for that to be your reality is not nothing Right? It's not nothing. It's, it's, it's beautiful. Because what happened is this. Somebody brought us to Jesus. And he didn't turn us away. Someone sought his presence on our behalf, asked for his blessing over us, 
And just as he did in today's text, he took us in and he blessed us. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing that's happening here. See, the problem with taking a purely individualistic view of ourselves and our faith is that Scripture never regards God's people as a random collection of unconnected individuals who happen to share a belief system. Scripture just doesn't talk about us that way. It describes us as the body of Christ, one body made up of many parts. It describes us as the bride of Christ, that we are collectively loved with an intimate, knowing, caring, precise love we're the people of God. When God speaks to his people, it's in this collective covenantal syntax. His promises are plural. They're not to you, they're to y'all, right? And so we have a lot to learn on this front. But the children are brought. They have people behind them. And Jesus turns away neither the children, and this is the thing that encouraged me so much this week, is he turned away neither the children nor the parents. He didn't turn away the parents who brought them. And as a dad who has been bringing his children to Jesus for as long as he's had children, this comforts me. Because I don't have a lot of control over the outcome of my children's faith. But one of the most beautiful truths that a parent can believe is what we see in this passage, and that's that Jesus loves my kids. And he loves them more perfectly than I do. So they're brought. Second, and we're winding down here with this, and this has to do with adapting to the reality of the situation we're in, adapting to the reality of grace in our survival situation. Secondly, and more importantly, these children are not just brought to Jesus, but they're dependent. They're completely dependent. All of us, all of this talk about the process of coming to Jesus and maturing in faith comes even into clearer focus when we, when we look at the point of application that Jesus makes in this passage. Because what he says, and it gets back to the question that we asked earlier, who's worthy to receive Jesus' blessing? What qualifies a person to be eligible for his grace? Jesus makes a point of application here, and he says this. He says, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. How's that for a point of application? Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Jesus was not a pluralist. He was not a universalist. He didn't believe that there were a lot of ways to get to heaven. That's one of the things our, our, our culture and our society kind of co-ops and assigns to Jesus is that he was cool with people as long as they were sincere about whatever it was that they believed. No. He says... Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. So what does he mean by this? We misunderstand if we think Jesus is saying, well, we have to be innocent, cherubic, right? Naive people if we want to enter his kingdom. That's not what he's saying. Because Jesus is not speaking about the characteristics of a child. He's speaking about the position of a child. It's not speaking about characteristics, it's position. Since in Jesus' day, children had no standing in society, 
Everything they had was an unmerited gift. Everything. They earned nothing. They depended on others to give them everything they needed. Everything. This is the only way a person can receive the kingdom of God. As those who come without a shred of merit and are completely dependent on the love and the grace of the king. There is no other way. There's no other way. And those in that situation would have understood that. The children have no standing and they are completely dependent and they are without merit. In today's text, Jesus is calling us, adapt to that. Adapt to that. Let go of what we think makes us worthy of God's love and embrace his grace. Like children adapting to what is and not what should be in our minds in order to survive. See, if we try to obtain salvation any other way, any other way, we won't survive what shall be required of us. Because what shall be required of us is undefiled perfection. And we've already missed that mark. And a second chance, you won't do any better with that. Sinclair Ferguson puts it this way. He said, the kingdom of God is a gift, not a right. It's given by grace, not earned by qualification. This good news is precisely how any of us receive the kingdom of God freely, without merit, without qualification, without fear. Jesus welcomes us as children and he does not turn us away. But understand why this is so important. It's important because it's important that he welcomes us and doesn't turn us away because it's the only way we can receive the kingdom of God. It's important that he does this because there is no other way. And so when we come to the streams of God's faithfulness and grace, we come in a very dire survival scenario. There is only one way to survive. And if we come as people who think we can achieve something or earn our way in, we're imposing a fiction we'd like to see over the reality that is. But if we come as children, bringing nothing and dependent on what is offered, then we will drink. We will receive. But if we come thinking we already know what needs to be done and that we can do it, we most likely won't drink. We won't receive. But either way, Jesus is saying, there's, there's only one stream. I want to close by reading a short passage from C.S. Lewis's book, The Silver Chair, from the Chronicles of Narnia, where a thirsty child named Jill Pole meets a lion, Christ figure, named Oslin at a stream. And it says this. Are you not thirsty, said the lion. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I, could I, would you mind going away while I do, said Jill. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. 
Will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come, said Jill. I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. Do you eat girls, she said. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I daren't come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. Pray with me. Lord, when you receive children, it's because you love them, and it's because the only way that anyone is received into your care is because of your grace and your love and your affection. We don't bring anything. We don't deserve anything. And yet you lavish us with mercy and kindness. You pour out your grace on us. Father, thank you for this passage of Scripture where we see you welcoming children and then doubling down on it and saying, this is the only way anyone can receive the kingdom of God is to come as a child as somebody who has no standing and is completely dependent and to only receive, receive, receive. Forgive us, Lord, for the ways that we have tried to read the situation and work it out on our own. Help us to adapt to the conditions that you give us, to receive them and to be grateful for them, to turn to you for mercy and grace, to trust that you give these things when our faith is in you, and Lord, we thank you for the little reminders that you give us along the way, corporate worship, gathering together as your people, the communion table where we come and we feast on this meal that reminds us of how it is that you secured our standing before you through your life in our place, your death in our place, and your resurrection defeating death for us. Thank you for your kindness. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.